So just kind of orient you where we're going this evening. We're basically just going to be walking through a, a passage out of the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I, I touched upon this passage last week, and I really kind of wanted to dig deeper. Um, it's one of those sermons that I think we need to hear, but it also, it, it, as I was preaching it this morning, I realized it's also, uh, it's a bit challenging. Uh, it challenged me, and I hope it'll challenge you, but also it's a fairly long passage, so there's also a challenge because it's just gonna, it's gonna have to walk through this passage. Um, and so uh, we do different things. Uh, we're not always the same way, but it's gonna be a bit more Bible tonight, uh, if that's okay. I, I may not have as many funny stories. I will do my best to make fun of myself and maybe provide you with some humor. Um, so one of the things that makes being a pastor difficult, um, one of the things that makes being a pastor difficult is just that everyone has Jesus figured out, or many of you have Jesus figured out. Like, right, you've read the Bible for yourself, um, or you've had a pastor in the past read the Bible and tell you how to interpret it, and so there, you're pretty sure you know what Jesus thinks. Um, and so then when someone has a differing view of what Jesus thinks, um, it can sometimes not go as smoothly as one might hope. Uh, and this has happened all throughout church history um, because we all have this vision of who Jesus is. And so this evening what I want to do is I want to talk about the Jesus who reveals. Because I believe at, at ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus reveals who God is. Because you're, the, the way that you view Jesus, who you view Jesus as being, is how you view God. Um, and the problem is that so many of us have these very fixed views of Jesus, which then fixes our view of God and often keeps us from seeing what God is doing in the world and keeps us from being able to see with fresh and new eyes. And one of the things, particularly in the Gospel of John, that we hear over and over and over again is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus shines light into the darkness. In fact, in John's gospel, which really highlights this, it appears over 30 times. John just keeps saying over and over, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus illuminates our darkness. And so the story we're going to look at today is actually about someone who Jesus heals of his blindness. But the subtext behind this passage is that we also have a spiritual blindness, and there's also spiritual pride that keeps us from fully seeing who Jesus is and fully seeing who God is and how God acts in the world. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a, blind, a, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind. Now, this man lived in a very different time than us. So in, in the time of Jesus, if you uh, had a, a disability, you were basically on your own. There, were, there was no support systems. There was no place you could go for help. There was no um, Braille edition of whatever you know, form you were filling out. Um, in, you were basically pushed to the margins of society. Um, you were left to beg and hope that somebody would take pity on you and would give you some money. And so this guy is sitting at the gates, and he's sitting, when Jesus walks by and Jesus sees him, he's sitting at the temple gates. And the reason he's sitting at the temple gates, 
the Bible doesn't say this, this is my guess, is he's hoping to play in one of two things. Either the generosity of people going to the temple, right? Sometimes when you're on your way to church, you know you do this, on your way to church and someone asks you for money, you feel a little more inclined because you're like, I'm going to worship Jesus, I really should give this person some money. So they're hoping to get your generosity. Or on the flip side, he's hoping to get your guilt, right? And so he's sitting at the temple gate because he's hoping to play on your generosity or your guilt, right? So this man is sitting there with his jar begging for money. And right now, as the story starts, he doesn't even have a speaking role. He is simply sitting in the background, and he is just a kind of this, he's just providing a backdrop for this conversation. And about this time, so he's sitting at the temple gate, Jesus and his disciples come walking along. Remember three weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be a disciple. And to be a disciple of someone, to be a disciple of a rabbi, meant that you followed in their footsteps, literally. So I, I was thinking about this scene. Um, Jesus comes walking wherever he goes, and I just have a feeling that Jesus walks at a really fast clip. I don't know why, um, but it just kind of scurries as he goes along, and, and then 12 disciples are like scurrying behind Jesus, um, kind of like a mama duckling, and um, I don't know why. Um, so anyway, Jesus is scurrying along like a mama duckling, and as they're doing this, they're having conversations about God and theology and heaven and scripture, and all these really deep and important topics that a rabbi would have conversations with um, his apprentices about. And, and, and when they see this man, when they see this man, the question is not, hey, rabbi, why is there suffering in the world? Or rabbi, why does this man have to suffer? No, no, they already know. They know why this man is suffering. He is suffering because he or his parents sinned. Like their categories are fixed. So they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? I remember I was, um, I was in seminary, and I had to teach a class on Wednesday evening. And um, it was an older group of people, and uh, they were suspect of the young seminarian with his crazy ideas about Jesus. And uh, I was about ready to lose my mind because every week I'd come in, I'd try to get them to see the gospel in a new way. I'd try to get them to see Jesus in a new way. And like the disciples, their categories of how God acts in the world are fixed. And so um, I thought I have to switch things up. So one day I went in there and I decided I was going to, I was reading a book on the historical Jesus, like what Jesus actually looked like and what he was like when he walked on the earth. And, and so I said, you know, most of you probably grew up in Sunday school class um, where you had an image of Jesus that was on the basement wall. And Jesus was a really hunky, good-looking white dude with, like, really nice hair. And um, I said, that's probably not what Jesus looked like. Chances are Jesus was about 5'8", his beard was matted, his hair was matted, and his feet were really gnarly because he walked everywhere in sandals. And if you walk everywhere in sandals without proper bathing, your feet get kind of gross. And so I really kind of painted this very vivid picture of Jesus. And you can see there's this one elderly gentleman across from me. Like, he's just getting more and more agitated, and he can't hold it any longer. And all of a sudden, he blurts out, my Jesus is beautiful. And I was like, okay, your Jesus is beautiful. <laughs> we don't like people messing with our conceptions of Jesus. We don't like people messing with our conceptions of, of God. And so when, when, the, when the disciples see this man, they already know the answer that this man is, his, has a disability because someone has sinned. And Jesus says, and Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he says this 
phrase that at first glance, I'm really not sure how to take it because neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that can be read one of two ways. Some people read it as God caused this um, thing to happen to him. God caused this blindness so that someday Jesus would be walking along, see him, and heal them, and then they'd be like, whoa, Jesus is, or God is great. That's one way you can read it. I think the better way to read it, or the way that I would choose to read it, um, which I think is the better way to read it, um, <laughs> is that what Jesus is saying is this man here that you see as being defected, this man that you see here as being worthless, because in that society, if you had a disability, you were seen as being someone that you, you must have done something wrong. Maybe you didn't do something wrong, but clearly your parents did something wrong. Someone had pissed God off. And so that is why things were the way they were. And, um, and, and Jesus is saying, no, this person that you view as nothing, that you walk by every single day and just think, wow, that poor, helpless soul. No, actually, he is someone that God is going to show his glory in. That person that you think is completely worthless, that has no value, that you think is broken because of something he has done, no, that person is going to be someone through whom God is going to show a great and mighty work. This blind man sitting at the gate, he would have been a social reject. Every day he would have come and lived under the shame and the guilt that everyone that walked by him assumed he must have done something to deserve this. Can you imagine that living in that state of self-hatred and self-doubt? And, and every day, this man would be dependent on others to get around. He would be dependent on others' generosity. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and simply, as he walks by, he gives dignity. And he says, this man will display the glory of of God. Jesus elevates outcasts. He does this all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the, the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels. Jesus constantly takes those who everyone else kind of overlooks or casts dispersion on, and Jesus elevates their status. One of the things that we see constantly is that Jesus shares a table with people, right? He's always eating food, which is actually why we're called the table. Um, our first sermon series ever was Jesus, uh, about Jesus having meals with people. But what's interesting is that Jesus shares meals with the religious elite. Like Jesus rolls with the, the really important religious leaders of his day. So Jesus and the Pharisees are often sharing a meal. But at the same table that Jesus shares a meal with the Pharisees at, he also shares with the outcast. He shares with the sinners and the tax collectors and those who've been pushed by the margins of society. And by doing so, Jesus elevates everyone and puts them on the same status. Verse 4. While it was daytime, this is one of the times when Jesus just kind of talks in riddles. Um, while it was daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. But night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying, this man who is here and my mission is to reveal the glory of God to the world, to bring restoration and renewal and shalom. Jesus is the light that dispels and disarms the darkness. 
And then what does Jesus do? The next thing he does is totally weird and totally gross. And I, total, I don't know why Jesus did it. But anyway, it's in the Bible, so we're going to read it. So in verse 6, he says, After saying this, after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Now, why? He is Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, he's like, hey, dude, you're dead. Rise up and be alive. Oh, you person who, you know, who can't walk, walk you know, stand and walk. But this moment... This guy, he, for some reason, he spits on the ground and takes the mud and cakes it on this guy's eyes. And then, now this is what I would do if I'm going to go through all this theatrics. Then I'm going to maybe just like pull it off or wipe it off and say, Dzinga or whatever you say. And it'd be like, <laughs> he'd be, he could see. But no, what he does, what Jesus says is he said, go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This means actually, which means scent. Go and wash in the pool of scent. Um, or go and wash in the pool of go. And so the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. This is crazy. Jesus and the disciples waddling through town. They see this man at the temple gate. They reach down. They, Jesus starts spitting on the ground. This man is kind of still like, there's been no conversation. In fact, we're going to see it. It doesn't happen until later about who Jesus is or any of that, right? He's not convincing this man. He, he puts all of a sudden, Jesus is putting mud on this man's eyes and saying, go and wash in the pool. And the man goes and he can see. He can see. Think about the faith that that must have taken, the obedience that must have taken. And I think at this moment, this dude doesn't have a whole lot of faith because this is one of the things I think we often get wrong. Often what God calls for is uh, for obedience. Faith often follows obedience. This guy doesn't have much faith. In fact, that we see at the end of this passage, we're going to read the faith comes at the end. Right now, God is just calling for obedience. So he gets up and he walks and he's like, this is weird, but what do I have to lose? And he goes and he washes and he can see. I found myself in situations like this where God calls me to do something absolutely ridiculous and my faith lagged behind obedience. I mean, that's the story of planning this church. I mean, I wish I could tell you, and in fact, I sometimes try to narrate it, that I had so much faith and I planted and I knew that God had his ba our back. But honestly, there were so many Sundays I went home and I, you can ask Charla, was just sure that this was going to fail because it was the worst sermon ever because I babbled on about theology for an hour and people's eyes glazed over. And, and I would say, this, I, this was a mistake. And then people begin to come and people begin to find community and new life and friendships are formed and all these amazing things happen. But, but the faith followed the obedience. Some of you, God is calling you to do something ridiculous right now, hopefully a little less ridiculous than spitting in mud and putting it on someone's eyes, but he's calling you to do something ridiculous. And you may not have the faith, but maybe you just need to step out in obedience. Maybe you just need to step out in obedience, and God will give you the faith. So he goes, he goes to the pool, and he washes, and he can see, and he is no longer blind. He's from this town. These are rural areas. Everyone knows him. They're like, hey, aren't you... Yeah, no, you're the guy who's been sitting at the gate begging week after week, month after month, month or year after year. Are you the same guy? Maybe you're the twin brother. And he replied, yep, it's me. The man, they call, and he replied, they're like, how in the world? How do you see? Like, what happened? And he replies, the man, they call Jesus, made some mud. You have to imagine, like, even as he's telling this story, there's some credibility, cred can't pronounce the word, He's, a little, he's skeptical even as he's telling the story. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. 
And he told me to go to Siloam and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Now, the religious leaders, they hear this story. It begins to trickle back to them, and they're like, there's something that's wrong. Something is not right. We have to get to the bottom of what this evil that has taken place is. Some guy is going around healing people. So verse 13, they brought this man to the Pharisees, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was on the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. And Jesus has healed someone. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees, right, their spiritual blindness, their spiritual pride kept them from seeing the work of God in the world. Because what's their first response? How can, this man is not from God, he, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. I thought of this, um, the, the verse that scared me as a child was, um, uh, about sinning against the, the sin against the Holy Spirit. If you've grown up in church, you may remember this. The only sin that is unforgivable is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And I used to go a lot, around a lot worried that I had committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's scary stuff. And, and, um, and when I dug down, what I realized is the sin against the Holy Spirit is simply seeing the things of God in the world and saying they're not of God. Because the moment we begin to name the work, the moment we lose eyes to see God moving and we begin to call what is of God and say, oh, that can't be of God, the moment we no longer have eyes to see what God is doing, we are no longer able to follow. Right? That's how we shut ourselves off from God. Which is why people want to knock other pastors or other churches I'm like, ah, it makes me really nervous because God is moving through them. There's something is happening. I am not going to disparage the work that God is doing. Are they doing it how I would? Do I think they're a bit weird? Yes, but that's not, my, that's not the point. The point is that God is working in and through them. And the thing is, not everyone gets it right. You're not going to believe this. This is true, though. I sometimes don't get it right, and, and I know it's, it's really hard to get your head around that, but like not everyone gets it right, but that doesn't mean that God isn't working in and through them. But the, the Pharisees cannot get beyond the fact that this man does not keep the Sabbath, so clearly the good work that he is doing, the sign that God's kingdom is emerging in their midst must not be from God. He broke the Sabbath. This blind man is standing before the religious leaders, and they're arguing. They're the religious elite, and they're arguing about how this man can see. Then, they call him back a second time. The man's got to be getting a little agitated. In fact, we see he gets a little agitated. They call him back a second time because they get in this big fight and this big argument. I think they're split. The Pharisees are split. Some are like, yeah, that's of Jesus, and the, or that's of God. And the other half is like, no, he did not keep the Sabbath. And rabbis are like yelling at each other. It's really awkward, so finally the man just kind of slips away. That's not all in the Bible, but a, most of the, the, the argument is. Um, and um, so they call him back again, and then verse 25 is one of the most powerful passages in all Scripture. Because he replies, right? They're, they're asking him, is this man of God? And they're, they're peppering with all these questions, and did you see him do anything else weird? Any other rules he's broken? And, and then the, this man says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. And some of you are in this space in life. You're like, people are wanting you to explain everything and sort everything out about your faith. 
and particularly those of you who are just starting your faith journey, and you're trying to talk to your friends and explain to them what you believe, and you're like, I, I, I don't even have categories to explain it all or the words to explain it all. All I know is that I experienced something in Jesus, right? I touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and I experienced new life. I don't even have categories to make sense of all this. I cannot explain to you exactly what happened or what's going on. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. Verse 27, he answered, this is the man who's been blind. I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? He's getting agitated. He's starting to yell. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they start sputtering all over themselves, and they hurled insults at him, and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. There's a lot of dispersion in that, those words. Now the man answered, now this is, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. So the man who's been blind is now taking their logic and flipping it on them. He said, this is remarkable. You don't even know where this man comes from. Yeah, he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. You know that. You've just been talking about this. God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will, and no one has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of the blind. If this man were not of God, he could have done nothing. So the Pharisees decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to toss this man out because he's messing with our categories. Right? The ideas that we have about God, this guy is causing us to have some questions and division. And so what do they do? They cast him from the community. And they say this, they say, you were steeped in sin from birth. How do we know? Because you had, had this issue. You were steeped in sin from birth. How dare you lecture us? I can hear the condens, the condens, the, I cannot speak tonight. They were mean to him. And, um, and then Jesus says, or when we read, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And Jesus went and found them. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the community, Jesus went and found him. And he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy replies, he's so honest. He's like, who is he, sir? The man asked, or who is he, the man asked. And he says, tell me so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed. And he worshiped him. I want to I end by showing you a grid. Um, this is from a book by Andy Crouch. Does any, have any of you ever read Andy Crouch's work on power? It's, it's really good stuff. Um, I think it's actually at the beginning of my slides. I jumped around. So this grid here um, is, a, is an axis of, of vulnerability and authority. Right? The, the up-down axis is authority. Um, and then across is vulnerability. And, and the idea, Crouch talks about that, that the American dream is to be in the top left-hand corner. You want to have all the authority and no vulnerability, right? You don't want to be dependent on anyone. This is why you work so hard and you watch your savings account, because you don't want anyone telling you what to do. You want to dictate your own life. And so everyone kind of dreams of being in that top left-hand corner, which is all authority, no vulnerability, which leads to often exploitation. 
But he said on the other end, um, he said in the bottom left-hand corner is you have no vulnerability, but there's also no authority. You're completely withdrawn. But he's, and then on the bottom right-hand is you have no authority and you are completely vulnerable. And he said that's the man at the gate, right? He, he is... He has no authority whatsoever, and he is completely vulnerable. His entire life is dependent on the largesse of other people, on someone either taking pity on him or having guilt or being guilty or feeling generous. His whole life is dependent on other people. He is completely and 100% vulnerable. But what Crouch says is the space that followers of Jesus want to be in, the place where we can flourish, is where we have authority. The church is sometimes not known what to do with talk about power. I was trained um, by Anabaptists, and Anabaptists, um, or Mennonites, uh, they, they don't really know what to do with power, uh, and they kind of see it as being a bad thing. But the problem is, what the, the problem with that is, when you don't acknowledge that you have power or privilege, you can go either way with either of those words, when you don't acknowledge it, you have it, you just steward it really poorly. So many of you in this room have power, and, and to pretend as if you don't have power or you don't have privilege is just fooling yourself. And, and, and he says, so Crouch says, look, the, 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 where you want to be as a follower of Jesus is acknowledging you have power, but also exercising that power with extreme vulnerability, where you open yourselves up to another person, where you open yourselves up to be changed by other people, where you, you make yourself, you put yourself at risk because the picture of Jesus or the picture that we see in the gospel is of Jesus who has ultimate authority. He has all authority on heaven and on earth, we're told, but yet he makes himself vulnerable even unto death. He is willing to, to put himself at such risk that he is killed. And the problem with the religious authorities in this story is that they have ultimate authority, right? They are the religious elite. They have all the authority, but they have no vulnerability. And so when they are presented with a picture of God, when, when light is shined on the darkness of their own images and views of God, when their own uh, glasses are clouded and they cannot see God clearly, the vulnerability is not there to be able to adjust and to be changed by another person. And, and as a pastor, this is one of the, this is the thing I constantly have to remind myself of. Now, I, I think I fool myself. I think I have too much authority. But religious leaders in general, you have a microphone and people think you know what you're talking about. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a certain amount of authority. And so the thing I have to constantly remind myself is how am I vulnerable to other people? How do I continue to allow their stories to influence the way that I pastor and the way that I lead? And often church leaders, and this I do not fault them for, but often church leaders wall themselves off. They protect themselves with giant books of theology, and they wall themselves off from people because church folk can be mean. And, and, and so you, you protect yourself so that they can't hurt you. I've done this. But to, to follow the, the model of Jesus, we have, to make, we have to exercise authority and power and privilege with vulnerability. And so my challenge this evening from the story that Jesus tells it is to, to ask yourself, where in this quadrant are you? Now, some of you are in the bottom right-hand corner. You have absolutely no authority and you are completely vulnerable. And to you, Jesus says, you have so much worth. Like, I see my glory in you. I'm going to do things in and through you that you had no idea was possible. 
And if you don't believe me, just go and read the entire Bible. It is one story after another of people who are vulnerable, people who mess up, people who have absolutely no right to do anything of note. And those are often the people that God ends up using. And the people that end up not, the people who end up being humbled are the ones in the top left corner, right? It is the, those who are exploiting other people, those who have ultimate authority and no vulnerability. They end up amounting to nothing. And they end up like Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, you know, out crawling, eating grass. Right? That, that's how they end up. But the people that God uses over and over, the ones that God sees glory in, are the ones that have in this bottom where everyone else sees that they are just don't have anything to offer. But some of you, some of you are in this top, in this top quadrant. You've got a lot of authority. You've got a lot of privilege. You've got a lot of power. When you call, when, you're, when, they see, when someone sees your number pop up on their cell phone, or they're like, I gotta answer this because this person's important. They're the boss. And if you're in that space, the question I wanna challenge you is how are you exercising vulnerability? How are you opening yourselves up to other people? How are you opening yourself up to the stories of other people? This was partly, this is kind of, in, in some ways, kind of foundation, the foundation of the lament service we had the other evening, is coming together and hearing each other's stories and being changed by those stories and realizing what life is like for, for people who have had different experiences than your own. And I even felt like I had to kind of like tell people as, as we were entering into that space, hey, by the way, if you hear anything that makes you put up your defense, you can lower it, be vulnerable. Because we do that, right? We, we automatically, we wall ourselves off, we protect ourselves because we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to be dependent on another person. None of us wants to be vulnerable. I mean, we love to talk about authenticity and vulnerability, but none of us really wants to be vulnerable. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, particularly in a city like D.C., where it is the power and the authority of the city is intoxicating. If you're going to survive and thrive in the city, you've got to figure out how do you walk in vulnerability as you exercise power. And if you're in the bottom quadrant and you're wondering if you have any worth or value, I just want to tell you that God thinks you're amazing and has amazing plans There's nothing wrong with you. You matter more than you'll ever know. So here's how I want to end. I just want to say a prayer for us. Um, the band will come, sing a song, or respond to communion. But I just want to say a prayer for you. No matter where you are, that God would, um, for some of you, that God would just remind you of how amazing you are and how much worth you have. And for others of you, that God would continue to remind you of his upside-down kingdom and call you to exercise your authority in the position of vulnerable, being vulnerable. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of this man, this man who sits at the gate day after day, and then he has an encounter with you that changes everything. I just... I think there's someone in this room this evening that, that they need that encounter with you that, to be reminded that they are, have worth and they have value and that you are going to do amazing things in their lives. But to others of us, to others of us who have insulated ourselves from other people because we're afraid 
I pray that you would help us to lean into our vulnerability, to, to become vulnerable. That we would understand that the way of your kingdom is through exercising power and authority from the position of weakness. And I pray that you'd continue to shine light into those areas of our lives where we don't look like you. In those areas where we have not been vulnerable. Continue to shine your light into the dark places so that we may look more like you.